0: You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee Podcast. Welcome to week three of our series on the Holy Spirit. Super excited about this. Uh, You know, anytime you start talking about the Holy Spirit, you are wrestling with everyone's uh, fears, preconceptions, Ideas of what it might like be, what, what, how they were told it was, and you're juggling all of those, okay? So I am telling you, in the name of Jesus, chill out. It's gonna be okay, all right? We're gonna talk about a couple of different ways of looking at this, because there are different ways of looking at this, and uh, we're just gonna ask the Holy Spirit to be who He is in our life and let Him have His way. Years ago, I was responsible for running an outreach for a church that we were on staff at, and It was at a park that I had never been to before. I knew exactly where it was, and I'm fairly good with directions. So I pulled into this big park, and I knew I had to turn right and turn left and turn right again, and I would come up a hill, and on the right side, that's where my big outreach would be. So I pull into the park, and I turn right, and I turn left and right, I go up the hill. I look to the right, and I'm looking for a bunch of children and a bouncy house and a popsicle truck and music, and there is nothing like goose egg. And I look over to the left, and on the left, there's a bouncy house and a popsicle truck and children. And my first thought, I was so sure that they were going to be over here, that my first thought literally is, what are the chances of somebody else doing a party exactly like we're doing across the road from where we should be? I was so disoriented. It was our party. It was exactly the people I was looking for. There are times when you are looking at something from a new angle, it's disorienting. It's like, I didn't expect to see it that way. Sometimes when we approach the Holy Spirit and we look at him from a way we've never considered him before, maybe it's a little bit disorienting. So maybe if this is new to you, or wow, I've never heard it taught that way before, don't let it get yourself disoriented. Just give it some time and ask him to speak to you. We're not going to do a, a long recap, as we have a couple of uh, past weeks. I just want to hit a couple of things in case you have missed it or just so it gets ingrained into you, is that you have a life of power and of gifting that is available to you. The Holy Spirit's available to everyone. And he interacts with the life of people in two different ways. And this is not just based on experience. It's based on the words of Jesus. He says in John 14, 16 to 17, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him because he dwell with you and will be in you. Jesus is taking stock of his disciples at this point. He's taught them for a few years. They've listened to his sermons. They've grown. They've seen the miracles. And he realizes he's about to go to be with the Father. And he goes, oh boy, you guys do not have everything that you need. Like, you could do some of what you're going to do out of sheer grit and determination, but you're going to need more. So he promises them, the Holy Spirit, to be with them and in them. You can accomplish a lot through pure grit and pure desire, but life will demand more of you than you can accomplish on your own. And so he gives us the Holy Spirit with us and in us, and that happens at the point of salvation. Everyone who trusts in the name of Jesus has the Holy Spirit with them and in them. And immediately, some of you are thinking, well, what about this other denomination over here that doesn't talk about the Holy Spirit? If they believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is with them and in them. So how do you know? If that were not the case, none of us would ever be convicted of anything. Would we? Like, I have a really unique ability to make excuses for what I want to do that is wrong. What is that still small voice in you that goes, that's not a good idea? You might do it anyway, but you've heard the voice. That's the Holy Spirit, and he resides in everyone who believes in Jesus. But then there is another subsequent experience to salvation when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And Jesus spoke of this often. Luke 24, 49, he said, And behold, I'm sending the promise of the Father upon you. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That second approach to the Holy Spirit is subsequent to salvation. It's an encounter that we have. And we'll talk about why we say that here in just a little bit. But that role of the Holy Spirit in this second approach, this second way of looking at him, is entirely different than the first. Acts 1.8 says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit is come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria until the ends of the earth. He is with you and he is in you for your own maturing in Christ And then he comes upon you for power, the accomplishment of his purposes on the earth, including his purposes in you. The modern spirit-filled church that you may have grown up in or not grown up in, or Pentecostal or Charismatic Church, does not have a corner on this experience of a baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's way bigger than that some of you know, I've got an affinity for Charles Finney. Charles Finney was kind of the original altar call evangelist in the United States. No one else was giving altar calls, and nobody gave an altar call like Charles Finney. Charles Finney would preach until people would weep with conviction, and then he would say, okay, who wants to accept Jesus? And they would come forward, and he would say, sit right there. And he would make them sit, and he would go, come back next week and see if you still, and he'd make them live under this conviction for a week, and then they would come back the next week, and he would lead them to Jesus. There would be no Billy Graham if there weren't a Charles Finney. He began that idea of a public confession of Jesus. Now, Charles Finney would have never used the word, uh, never referred to himself as Pentecostal. He would have never called himself spirit-filled. He really didn't even have language for that in that day. But he had an encounter. One day, he was a practicing lawyer and, uh, who later went into ministry, but one day he talked about he was so hungry for the things of God that he went into his office and he sat down with all the lights out, just a small fire burning in the fireplace, and he cried out to God, Jesus, will you reveal yourself? And he has a vision of Jesus appear to him in the room. He said, later, I had to remind myself that that didn't physically happen, that it was an encounter that I was seeing. It was in the spirit, but it wasn't real. And Jesus sat with him and spoke to him about areas of his heart that he needed to surrender. And one by one, as he gave these things to the Lord, he said something along the lines of, I want everything that you have for me. And let me just read this passage from Charles Finney as what he says happened to him. As I turned and was about to take a seat by the fire, I received a mighty baptism of the Holy Ghost. Now, remember, he predates anything that you and I would consider Pentecostalism or the Pentecostal church. I received a mighty baptism of the Holy Ghost without any expectation of it, without ever having the thought in my mind that there was any such thing. Without any recollection, I'd ever heard this thing mentioned by any other person in the world. The Holy Spirit descended upon me in a manner that seemed to go through me, my body and soul. I could feel the impression, like a wave of electricity going through and through me. Indeed, it had come in waves and waves of liquid love. For I could not express it any other way. It seemed like the very breath of God. I can recollect distinctly that it seemed to fan me like immense wings. No words can express the wonderful love that was shed in my heart. I wept aloud with joy and love, and I do not know, but I should say I literally bellowed under unutterable gushings of my heart. These waves came over me and over me and over me, one after another, until I cried out, I shall die if these waves continue. I said, Lord, I cannot bear anymore, yet I had no fear of death. He has this encounter with the Holy Spirit, independent of the trappings that you and I know of in the way of the charismatic or Pentecostal movement. The Holy Spirit has fallen on people down through history. This is a whole church thing. And the purpose of this encounter, this baptism of the Holy Spirit, is for the empowerment of believers to proclaim the gospel with power and to exercise spiritual gifts given to us for the maturing of the church. Paul wrote about a broad number of, in the nature of gifts, we're going to talk about these in the next couple of weeks, but he said they are for the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. The gifts of the Spirit are for the good of the church, for the good of the one who receives the gift, and for the good of the world. This is to draw us into the great storyline of God so we're no longer just observers or the gospel is no longer just happening to us, but we are extensions of the kingdom in power and things begin to happen that can be explained no other way. The Holy Spirit is with us and in us for our own maturity, but he comes upon us for the proclamation of power. We will be his witnesses, the maturing of the church, and the discipling of nations. And all of that takes more than grit or determination. You do not have it in you. What I want to stir up this morning is we're going to talk kind of academically about some of this stuff, but I want to stir up in you an expectation that there is way more than just coming to church, feeling a little warm, fuzzy. There is a power that comes upon us that makes a difference out there. And you can expect it. And if you have trained your heart to not expect it, then you are cheating yourself and you're cheating everyone who comes encounter with you. I quote John Wimber a lot. Most of you know he was the founder of the Vineyard. And uh, those that he influenced greatly have been some of the most direct influences on my life. I've never met John, but uh, I'm kind of second tier, a, a disciple of his school of thought. And before he founded the Vineyard, before he was a pastor, he was a professional musician. He worked in the Las Vegas music circuit for about five years. And then he went on to be part of the group and manage a group called the Righteous Brothers. Some of you recognize that, some of you don't. So I'll bring it up today for some of you. Top Gun 1, Tom Cruise is in a bar, sings a song. That was the Righteous Brothers, okay? Then some of you go, okay, now i got a grid for the Righteous Brothers. I'm just bringing everybody into the storyline Aaron, all right? When John came to Jesus in 1963, in his own words, this is how he described himself. He was a beer-guzzling, drug-abusing pop musician who was converted at the age of 29 while chain-smoking his way through a Quaker Bible study. He would go to this Quaker home Bible study and smoke one cigarette after another and just ask questions. How much do you love people that you allow them to sit in your home in your Bible study and chain smoke? But as he did this, he became hungry for the things of the Lord. He started going to their services, their church services, and after three or four weeks of going to the church services and reading the Bible voraciously, he just consumed it, just chain smoke and read the Bible. And as he would do this, he got to the church and after about the fourth week, he grabbed one of the leaders and he says, "Um, when do we get to do the stuff? And the leader said, well, what what stuff are you talking about? The stuff I'm reading about, the healing the sick, the healing the blind, the, the Jesus stuff. When do we get to do the stuff? And the leader gets a little rattled and he goes, we don't actually do the stuff. We read about the stuff and we talk about the stuff. And John blurts out, I gave up drugs for this? Like, I mean, at least before I was having some kind of an encounter, you know, there was a little excitement to it. I gave up drugs for this? He was looking for the promised experience. Okay, he was reading the Bible and he's going, I believe this. And if I believe it, where is it? The full experience does not come from education. If that were the case, then all we would need is a PhD to have everything the Lord has for us. Although We believe in education. The full experience doesn't come with life experience. If it did, we would just find the oldest among us and have them pray over us and be a done deal. Although, you know, life experience is good. The full experience with power for evangelism and spiritual gifts comes through the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the baptism of the Holy Ghost. However you term it, growing up Pentecostal, they just called it the baptism. We didn't even think about water baptism. We just knew the baptism was that. There is an expectation in the New Testament that you'd get saved, baptized in water, and then you would have this encounter with the Holy Spirit, and it was real. In Acts 19, Paul is passing through Ephesus, and the gospel is outrunning the leaders at this point, which is awesome, okay? Like the movement is going so fast that when Paul gets to Ephesus, he's shocked there are believers there already. How did you get, I don't know, somebody told somebody and it outran the leaders. And in Acts 19, verses 2 through 6, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Stop, what does that infer? That infers there is an encounter that comes, right? And they said, no, we had not even heard there was a Holy Spirit. And he says, then into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. They're like, oh, water baptism. Yeah, we were water baptized. And Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. They began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So they have this subsequent encounter with the Holy Spirit, and they are baptized. Sadly, people have been fighting about the nature of the baptism of the Holy Spirit probably ever since that encounter. They've been dickering about it. What does it mean? What about this? I had this encounter, but you didn't have it. Did you get what I got? I am just honest enough to want all that the Bible promises, but I have also enough fear of God not to want to add things to that experience, okay? So I've got a pretty open-handed with my approach of how I teach this and how I look at it and how we're going to ask for it. I said it in previous weeks, the strongest, most clearly defined theologies about how the Holy Spirit works generally belong to people who have had the most minimal experience with him. Because if you had a very minimal experience with him, you can write hard and fast rules. But if you've encountered him over years, you realize that he has broken several of your rules and he moves a lot of different ways. Regarding how people think about this, okay, there's a great divide between cessationists and continuists, all right? Just so we get these words right, everybody say cessationists. It's a lot of syllables. Cessationists. In fact, when you, Microsoft Word doesn't even recognize it as a word. It tries to correct it, but it has no correction for it. Cessationists versus continuists. I would describe a cessationist view, but in fairness to them, it would be better to let them describe it, okay? So Tom Pennington is a pastor of Countryside Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. He's a, uh, he travels a lot and speaks with um, Dr. John MacArthur, who I have a lot of honor for. I, I appreciate his Bible study. However, they're both cessationists, and they describe it this way. So what do we mean by cessationism? We mean the Spirit no longer sovereignly gives individual believers the miraculous gifts that are listed in Scripture and that were present in the first century church. It is neither the Spirit's plan nor His customary or normal pattern to distribute miraculous spiritual gifts to Christians or churches today as He did in the time of apostles. Those gifts ceased as normative with the apostles. If you just jumped on YouTube, I don't believe this, okay? There was a ramp up. I didn't want somebody to watch just part of this and go, that's what he thought. No, I'm giving you the other side. Now, there are smart, godly people who believe this, but they believe that these gifts are done. Cessationists fall into that category. The more difficult life becomes, the more difficult it is to find a cessationist. All right? cessationism is for those who can manage life pretty well without the holy spirit resting on them in power for evangelism and spiritual gifts in other words if you've got a nice life or at least they think they have a nice life they've got the holy spirit in them and with them and they don't know that they really need him to come upon him the sanitized environment necessary for cessationism is deteriorating rapidly What I mean by that is our ability to get along without the power of the Holy Spirit is going to dwindle because life is going to change. We are racing towards an environment where supernatural power will not be an option. It will be a necessity because the days are short and we're entering into a new season. I am not a prophet of doom. I just read the Bible and kind of trust that Jesus means what he says. Matthew 24, 21 to 22, Jesus is speaking here. He says, for then there will be a great tribulation such as not has been from the beginning of the world until now and nor will ever be. In other words, the most intense time in history. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short this is speaking of a worldwide crisis that is coming now fortunately when we hear the words worldwide crisis we have a bit of a grid that we didn't have two years ago all right for a mild one what we've gone through with covid it wasn't the deal but it made us think about the deal in a way we never would have thought about it before covid was like a 5k that we ran in the spring in preparation for a marathon we're glad we did it we're glad we made it but it's not the full thing how will that start what will those days be like when we enter into that situation Matthew 25 37 to 39 again quoting Jesus for as were the days of Noah so it will be for the coming of the son of man For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So it will be with the coming of the days of man. The days of Noah were actually days of great darkness. If you read the book of Genesis, there were human beings interacting in an ungodly way with spirit beings. There was great darkness on the land, and yet Jesus describes it as people just living their lives. It was people living their normal lives during times of great darkness that they didn't even perceive how dark they were. In a time of great darkness, when the strangest things were considered normal, that was when we will need the power of the Holy Spirit the most. You're going to need Him to come upon you for a baptism for evangelism and the giftings otherwise you will not stand is going to mess with your book club it is going to mess with what we have determined to be nice christianity disassociated from a baptism encounter with the holy spirit in that day Some will cry out for a baptism of the Holy Spirit for him to come upon them in power, not just for an exciting worship service, but for the power to stand in victory and exercise the fullness of what it means to walk in the Spirit. I'm telling you, in that day, it will be hard to find someone who is a cessationist. They will surrender these views because they will need more. Not because they weren't saved, they're saved but because they will need the Holy Spirit in power upon them. What we do not perceive that we need in times of ease, we are desperately aware of in times of crisis. It is in the crisis context that the Holy Spirit is poured out in the book of Joel not going to read the whole thing now but we read often from Joel 2 where it talks about a wartime and an economy and a, a society that is crashing and he pours out the spirit he says this is how we'll do it at the end of the age and this is the very passage that Peter quotes in the book of Acts when he says this is that cessationism is a luxury that we will not have at the end of the age now the vast majority of the church around the world are not cessationists they are what we call continuists or they believe that in some form or fashion the baptism of the holy spirit is a real thing for power and the spiritual gifts are for today some of you going to have a lot of friends that don't believe this that's kind of an american quirk if you travel to africa where by the way the church is much older than it is here in the united states They have no grid for not believing in the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the power gifts. If you travel to Central America or to Asia, they they have very little grid. You you go to what, what may be a denomination here in the United States that does not exercise those things. You go to their branches in other countries and they're like, oh no, we're all in. How could we not? This is what the Bible says. But just because the bulk of the church are continuists, it doesn't mean they all see it exactly the same way. Even that expectation of a baptism in the Holy Spirit encounter is manifest in a broad range of expectations and expressions. So I want to talk about four groups really quick about how they look at this idea of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Some of you are going to be going, oh, I was in that group, or I am in that group, or I was in that group, and I moved to that group. That's okay. First group I want to talk about are what we would term Pentecostals, all right? These are my people. I grew up in a Pentecostal church. This is, is my background. So I, I get this. I know the lingo. I know even the subtribes in the Pentecostals and the subtribes of the subtribes. It is considered by recent, uh, fairly recent by church historians, but Pentecostals would argue that they go all the way back to the New Testament. Years ago, I was somewhere I was speaking and I encountered a YWAM group who had pulled away from YWAM and affiliated with the Russian Orthodox Church, which I thought was an unusual twist. So I start talking with him. I said, how did this happen? And he goes, well, you know, we were in Alaska, and we felt a little bit disconnected, and we, we wanted to go back as far as history as we could. So we, they literally traveled to Russia to get the blessing of the Russian Orthodox Church so they could become part of it. And he was really excited about this. He told me, he said... Um, You know, we trace our roots, our apostolic succession, all the way back to the apostle Andrew. Whoa, that's pretty, that's impressive, you know. And I said, well, I grew up Pentecostal. We trace our roots back to the upper room. Because that's how we think about that in Pentecostal terms. That was our our encounter. Kind of put a wet blanket on the conversation. But it was just interesting to me. In the United States, Pentecostals would trace their lineage probably back to Topeka, early 1900s. 30-year-old woman, Agnes Osman, asks those in her Bible college, will you pray for me? I believe there is a baptism, and I believe I'm, she had faith for the gift of speaking in tongues. They gathered around her, they prayed for her, and Agnes began to speak in other tongues. That began to spread across the United States. It resulted in what we talk about very often, the Azusa Street Revival, and all of that. What you ever think about, what was she praying when the Holy Spirit came upon her? Because some of you have been in meetings where they told you if you pray X, Y, Z and hold your hands a certain way, you know, there was a formula to it, right? You do this and the Holy Spirit baptized them every time. I ran across this. I'd never read this before. This is what Agnes was praying when she was baptized in the Holy Spirit. She prayed the same prayer every day, right out of scripture, Hebrews 13, starting in 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. She was praying a simple prayer of surrender. That's all it was. And in praying that, had this incredible encounter with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in tongues. Now, there are so many positive things that came out of this movement, this Pentecostal movement. One, missions, they were compelled to send missions around the world. you know how, why most of South America is Pentecostal? Because it was a Pentecostal movement that sent the missionaries. Huge missions emphasis. Now, it would go a little squirrely sometimes. They were so convinced when they received a prayer language or a language of speaking in tongues, there were some of them were convinced, I am called to the mission field, and this is the language that I must speak when I get there. And rather than going to language school, they would get on the boat. Get off the boat and realize, oh, this is not the language that is spoken here. This is awkward. Now I know two languages. One I don't really know, but I kind of know, and none of them help me get bread or milk. But missions was a huge emphasis in the Pentecostal church. Another one was boldness in compassion. This one's overlooked a lot. But the early Pentecostal church, most of them were very poor, and they had a great heart for the poor. Early 1900s, massive influx of people across the southern border, much like today. Pentecostal black churches would organize relief groups that would go down to the border, meet the Mexican immigrants, give them things for their physical needs, and hold revivals. The black church did this. number of positive things came out of the Pentecostal movement, and, they, and those continue today. Also some Challenges. Some Pentecostals, and some that wouldn't claim that, believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is always accompanied immediately by speaking in tongues. And and they say that's how it happens. You baptize, you speak in tongues every time. And they, and they, they fully believe that. And for many, that was their, from my own experience, that was my experience. That's what happened. It's not necessarily what happens with everybody. We'll talk about that in a little bit the motivation for that is incredibly good. They want them to have an encounter that they can look back and say, I was marked and that's how it has happened. However, we don't necessarily see it all the way through the book of Acts. If you go to Acts 8, 14 to 17, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them to Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. It doesn't talk there about them speaking in tongues. Could they have? They could have, but it's not clear. So that, is, that idea of speaking in tongues is descriptive rather than prescriptive. It is a description of what has happens in times in the Bible. It's not necessarily a prescription that applies to everybody. Later, Paul lists speaking in tongues in a part of a, spir- a list of spiritual gifts, but he doesn't emphasize it above the other gifts at all. In fact, if anything, he takes a minute to, dem- to not diminish it, but just say, hey, there are other things here. 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 4, he says, Pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you might, a Pentecostal would say, speak in tongues. But he goes, no, especially that you would prophesy. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, and no one understands him, for he utters the mysteries of the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. I want you all to speak in tongues. I want you all to get this gift. But even more, I want you to prophesy the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets that the church may be built up so paul in regard to speaking in tongues valued tongues wants everyone to speak in tongues but never draws the line that if you're baptized in the holy spirit you will always do this i am grateful for my pentecostal roots i am grateful that i speak in tongues i'm grateful that was a part of my experience but for me to build a theology on my own experience as to oppose the whole of scripture i've got to look at the whole of scripture and say it's not clear that that happens to everybody immediately. The Pentecostals, particularly in the first 50 years of their movement, struggled with two things, though. One, they struggled with the issue of race. Early on, there was a great multiracial movement revival in Azusa Street it was huge it was one of the things that was always marked upon when reporters would go to write about it that it was multiracial but it was hard to sustain and one of the things that struggled out of that and eventually split later where they split along issues of race and they split into a couple of different denominations but almost entirely down racial lines and they have made great strides in the past 20 years to reconcile those things, but it's been something they've struggled with. The other thing they've struggled with is their, pre, their preeminence in the uh, lower economic strata from the very beginning made them a little unseemly to the rest of the church. And the rest of the church looked at what was going on and they're like, it's a revival, but those people all live on the wrong side of the tracks. And I don't know if I want a part of that. Those are things that Plagued Pentecostalism from the very beginning. But because the Holy Spirit is for everybody on both sides of the tracks, there was a second wave of people that came along that encountered the Holy Spirit, and they were generally referred to as charismatics. The 1950s, many in the mainstream of the church were so hungry for God, but they really weren't hungry for all the trappings of Pentecostalism, or to be fair, they didn't even know that existed. All they wanted was all that God had for them. And God began to move in Anglican churches, and in Episcopal churches, and in Catholic churches. And many that were touched in the charismatic movement weren't rejecting Pentecostalism. It was just an encounter of their own. They began to seek the Holy Spirit and they wanted the fullness of the experience without letting go of the traditions they grew up in. And the result was a theology of the baptism of the Holy Spirit with fewer hard and fast qualifiers on it in other words it was a little more about god what are you doing in me versus what are you doing through me the charismatic movement had a tremendous influence on the jesus people movement of the 60s and 70s and the culture of the charismatic movement trended a little more towards the experiential it's where a lot of what many of us jokingly call the the conference mentality where if I just go to the right meeting or I have the right guys pray over me, that I'll have some sort of encounter. It's not all bad. There are times you should go to specific meetings and you should seek out someone specifically to pray for you, but the Charismatics kind of lean that way. Because the Pentecostals, the Charismatics, late 70s, early 80s, a new group came along that probably would never identify themselves as a group, but we see them now as a distant, uh, more of what we'd call third wave people, in the 1970s, and 1980s. The third way was more oriented towards the gifts of the Spirit rather than unusual manifestations. They didn't really emphasize tongues, although they spoke in tongues. They didn't really emphasize prophecy that much, although they prophesied. They were more interested in the gifts of the Spirit that would spread the gospel. Romans 12, 6-8 says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving." To the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, to the one who contributes in generosity, to the one who leads with zeal, and to the one who acts with mercy, with cheerfulness. The third wave of believers in the United States that really leaned into this idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit were as likely to pray for healing or to prophesy over someone as they were to speak in tongues. They saw everything that they did as infused with the power of the Holy Spirit. They use that phrase that you've heard us use before, supernaturally natural, or naturally supernatural. We're just, it's just a part of who we are. And it becomes very commonplace, not in a derogatory way, but in a useful way. A good friend of mine, Robert Pooley, he and his wife, Vicky would fall into this category, as I probably put myself. And Robert and Vicki went to eat breakfast at Waffle House one day. They're there at Waffle House, and the waitress comes, and she's rattled. Something's wrong. And they're busy, but they ask her, are you okay? And she just looked at him, and she said, no, we've had several people quit today. The cook's mad. Everything's going bad. I'm not doing okay. And Robert said, well, we were about to pray, with, pray over our food. Could we pray for you? She's She goes, yeah, why not? Then she sits down with him. So they held her hands. They prayed over her, learned her name, prayed that the Holy Spirit would touch her. Uh, just ha- Robert had a couple of words for her regarding her family. Prayed over her. When they're done, she's just weeping there in the eggs. I mean, she's just crying over their breakfast. She gets done. She's wiping tears away. Thank you. You need more coffee? And she goes off and does her thing. Not long after that, Robert and Vicki go back to Waffle House. I have raised that issue with him before. <laughs> Robert, you go to Waffle House a lot. They live in the Panhandle of Florida. He said it's just a cultural thing. So they go to pan, the, the Waffle House, and while they're they're there, they, they see her. She comes in, and and she's waiting on them, and she brings them their food, and she stands. They wait. She goes, "Are we going to pray?" <laughs> okay. So they, they sit down. They pray together. This is the third waivers would say. There's got to be something about being baptized in the Holy Spirit that makes the expression of that so natural that whether it's at Waffle House or at Walmart or at Target or across your back fence, that the Holy Spirit can use you in power to touch people's lives. I love my Pentecostal roots. I love that I speak in, the, in tongues. love it, it was a great blessing. I love all that. I love my friends in the Charismatic Church. I have had incredible encounters. But I'm telling you, if this doesn't work at Waffle House, it doesn't work. Like, if we can't take this with us apart from the conference and apart from the speakers and the guitar player hitting that one chord, if it doesn't work apart from that, right? Then what we have is manipulation, not power. And I'm telling you, I love the conference. I like the right chord. I like that word. I love all of that. But that is so weird if it doesn't work anywhere else. I am hungry encounters with the Holy Spirit and an infusion of power that allow me to minister to people and have breakthrough like seven days a week. Not just in these engineered environments. You're looking around going, this is an engineered environment? Yeah, kind of. Kind of. Paul, in his writings to the Holy Spirit, spoke extensively about the gifts of the spirit and he tied those gifts to the furtherance of the gospel saying i couldn't convince you with words but i can convince you with power first corinthians 2 4 and 5 and my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of me but in the power of god Now, wherever you fall in these groups that we've talked about, some of you are like, oh, that's my tribe, oh, that's my... Uh, Good, I'm happy. But I'm telling you, I want you to encounter him in a way that makes a difference other than outside of your engineered environment. Like, I want you to encounter him in such a way that your neighbors go, what happened to you? What you know, and, and you have a dream for a neighbor. and You go, this is what I... Th- I want you to go to your mechanic, and as you're standing there, you're prodded. Pray for this guy, and you're able to pray for him, and something happens. Because if we don't have those encounters, we are a very strange little group that talks about things with great fervency and never encounters them. That... Ability, I hate to call it an ability. That gift takes a baptism. This morning, as we were worshiping, I couldn't help but feel a heaviness on some of you. Like a a a lid. I just I felt it. Felt it on myself. There comes with the baptism of the Holy Spirit a removal of that lid. And a freedom in worship. A freedom to express yourself. Some of you are like, yeah, I do that. I just, I, I, I didn't, I don't know why I didn't do that. The Holy Spirit wants to peel that off and fill you with such joy. And empower you to do more than you could possibly Imagine.